theyeshiva.net. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode on the Nachum Siegel Network with Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. So we're on now every single Mitzvah Shabbos, every Saturday night, from 10 to 11 p.m. on the Nachum Siegel Network. This is episode number three, and I want to thank all of the very positive feedback I've been receiving over the last few weeks for this radio show. Thank you all for joining us, for sharing it with your friends, for listening, for all of your questions that you can send to RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com. That's RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com. Tonight we explore the issues of dealing with failures and mistakes in life. But let me begin, since we're coming from a uh, very festive holiday, the happiest holiday in the Jewish calendar, the holiday of Purim, just celebrated Thursday and Friday, Purim and Shushan Purim. So we were sitting at the meal of Purim, at the Sudas Purim, the festive feast of this great holiday. Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening, and one of the people attending uh, the Su'uda shared a beautiful vart, a beautiful insight from the Amshin of a Rebbe. And the question he raised was, why did Esther have to make two meals in order to defeat Haman and his decree? What happened was, Queen Esther asks her husband, the king, the Persian king Ahasuerus, to come to a meal, to a feast, to a great party that she prepared, he should come and Haman should come. At that meal, her husband asks, what would you like? And she says, I want you to come to a second feast. At the second feast, when he says, what would you like? She finally tells him the truth, that she's a Jew, and she and her entire people have been targeted to complete annihilation by his top aide and personal uh, friend and the top minister of the Persian Empire, Haman, and the king executes Haman and the Jewish people are saved. As they say, the shortest summation of all Jewish holidays, they try to kill us. We won. Now let's go eat. So the question is, why did she have to make two feasts? Why couldn't she spill her beans at the first party? She wanted a party, the king would drink, it'd be tipsy, informal, comfortable, loose. You know, at parties you can get things done that you can't get done in formal meetings. Got it. But why the need for the second feast? So there's a lot that's been written and discussed on this. Last week I gave a big class about this from a psychological perspective, which you can find on theyeshiva.net. But the Amshinover said a very lovely, I guess, Hasidic take on it. The Megillah says that after the first feast, Haman comes out, the man is happy, he's rejoicing, he's kvelling. In fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's the first time we find in the Megillah anybody happy. Till then, we have many people who are drunk, intoxicated, inebriated, wild, mad, Parting, the king throws a party for 187 days, but we don't see anybody content, happy, joyous, wholesome. The first time we encounter happiness in the book of Esther is Haman comes out from the first feast, he's happy. He comes home to his wife and he extols his successes, his achievements in life. Even the queen, the first lady, who does she invite to a personal feast she makes for her own husband, the Persian monarch? Who does she invite? Only me. Esther saw Haman at the first feast. He was so happy. And she knew that when somebody is happy, you can't defeat them. When somebody is besimcha, when somebody is filled with joy, even if the joy is coming from the completely wrong reasons, but you can't defeat them. So Esther knew this is not the moment that she could finally deliver the ultimate punch that would rescue her people from extermination. 
She needs a second opportunity. What happens the next day at the meal? The next day at the feast, it says, The next day he comes, he's in a state of mourning, of grievance. He's fachmuret, fahakt, fashosen, he's geklopped, he's dejected, he's depressed, he's sad, he's downtrodden. Now Esther knew she can defeat his evil plot and give us the Purim holiday. There's a famous metaphor that's given by the Balatanya, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, in his book of Tanya, chapter 26. He says that in martial arts, victory is not reserved for the person who's necessarily more powerful. Victory is reserved for the person who is in a better state of mind, the person who's happier, who's more alert, who acts with more uh, alacrity, with swiftness. And the metaphor in life is, he says, you know, life is a battle. There's two souls within us. There are two voices. There are two states of consciousness. And victory is not reserved necessarily for the person who's stronger. It's reserved for the person who's happier. So therefore, Esther knew at the first feast, she can't defeat him. She needed a second opportunity. This is what Amshinava said. On the way home from the Purim feast, one of my sons asks me a good question. He says, Tati, I don't understand. How did Esther know that the second day Haman is going to be depressed? <laughs> of course, we know in hindsight the reason because that night the king had a sleepless night and he couldn't fall asleep and he decides to reward Mordechai for saving him from an assassination attempt by Bixon Viserys years earlier and it happens to be that inadvertently Haman comes to the palace to ask the king to hang Mordechai on the tree that he prepared and the king asks him how he could reward somebody who did him a special favor and Haman thinks he wants to reward him him. so Haman describes this lavish reward and uh, and the king instructs Haman to do exactly this to do exactly this for Mordechai so now poor Haman is leading Mordechai on the royal horse around the streets of Shushan as Mordechai is dressed in royal cloaks and shouting this is what we do to a man whom the king wants to confer, confer glory upon and when this happens of course Haman comes home and he's depressed and he's sad so he comes to the feast he's already in a bad mood but how did Esther know this? This was my son's Shiloh, my son's question. So this is what I told him. I told him Esther knew that Haman's simcha will not continue for too long. She knew that his happiness will not continue for too long because it was a happiness that came from Klippa. It didn't come from Kedusha. Let me explain what I'm saying. There are two types of happinesses in the world. Two types of happiness in the world. There's a happiness that comes from distracting yourself from your true essence. What we often call in English, you had a good time, it was good, it was fun, it was exhilarating. But it's not necessarily happiness. Happiness is a challenge. You know, if I, if I have a good time today, did it come because I distracted myself from myself? Or did it come because I was, I was united with myself? All happiness that Haman can experience, Haman who represents the epitome of, of unholiness, of ungodliness, the happiness that Haman can experience is essentially a thrill. And if you can give yourself a thrill every single day, you could make believe you're happy. And that's what so many people do. They go from party to party. They go from one high to another high. They go from one addiction to another addiction. They go from one distraction to another distraction. They go from one mall to another mall, from one website to another website, from one station to another station, from one channel to another channel. They buy one thing and then another thing. They go from one vacation to another vacation, from one gadget to another gadget. And so they distract themselves enough that they say, of course I'm happy, but are they really happy? It's to the contrary, because they're not happy. They need so many distractions in life. They need so many parties. They need so many bad habits. They need so many thrillers in order to stimulate them from the outside world. They need so many drugs and maybe destructive substances in order to fill the void. That happiness never lasts because by definition, it's external. By definition, it's superficial. Whenever your highs in life are coming from external,
external substances. It means that you're not on a high. You're not high from yourself. You're not high from life. You're asking the Lord to get you high from other substances. But this is not a radio show on drug abuse, although it's a very important topic, or alcoholism, which is also a very important topic. We're talking about failures and mistakes. So I told my son that Esther knew that Haman's joy cannot endure for too long. It's going to dissipate. Joy that comes from your connection with your essence, from your relationship with your soul, from you being truly who you are, from being one with your with your creator, with your reality, with your core. That's a joy that can endure. But other forms of joy are more thrillers. They're more, you know, distractions, as we explained. This was my answer to him. I don't know if it's right or wrong. As they say in Hebrew, If I made a mistake, may God error. But the good news is that my son accepted my answer, and he said that was a good answer. So that itself felt very good, and I was happy for the moment. Now you want to know if my happiness continued, that we'll discuss another time. So let's now get to our topic. Really, this is our topic, because because this insight of Esther, that when you're in a state of joy, you can't be defeated. Even if your joy, even if your joy is not coming from good reasons, but joy just has something very powerful about it. Simcha, joy, happiness is extraordinarily powerful and Esther needed Haman to be defeated and now we get into our topic and we respond to emails and questions about mistakes and failures in life so I want to welcome everybody you are on the Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson weekly radio show on the Nachum Siegel Network we are here every Matzai Shabbos every Saturday night from 10 to 11 p.m. You can email your comments, suggestions, questions, remarks, objections, and as good Jews, alternate speeches to Rabbi Way, to, to Rabbi YY Radio at gmail.com. That's Rabbi YY Radio at gmail.com. Question number one I married the wrong person. That was a terrible mistake I made some time ago. How do I deal with that mistake? <laughs> I am laughing. This is a uh, this is an intense question to begin. To begin, this person wants to know how they deal with their error of what they call a bad mistake in choosing the wrong spouse. What am I supposed to tell you? I could, I could tell you, so you made a mistake, so get out of the marriage. But I don't think that would be an appropriate and real response. I think that's an easy response. Maybe sometimes it's a right response. In other words, I don't know the details of your situation. I don't know who you are. I don't know who your spouse is. I don't know why you call it a mistake. But sometimes, obviously, when somebody enters into a marriage and it's dysfunctional and it's, uh, it's abusive and it's filled with pain and it's filled with destructiveness, so sometimes divorce is the proper answer. The Torah itself legislated divorce thousands of years ago in the book of Deuteronomy and Parshish Kisaitz, even at a time when among Christians divorce was inappropriate Judaism acknowledged that sometimes it's the only option, but it's always a last option. It's always a last resort. It should never be done lightly, ever. It's like an amputation. You know, sometimes amputating a limb is crucial. Sometimes it saves a life. Sometimes divorce saves lives. People who are always opposed to divorce are making a mistake. We know situations when literally there's, there's danger in the home, there's horrible abuse in the home, and one has to get out of that situation. And that's why the Torah legislates divorce. There are such situations, but it's very, one has to be very sensitive and cautious and humble in this question. Because you're telling me you made a mistake, and therefore how you should deal with that mistake. And I want to ask you, is it maybe possible that there is, there are other factors involved. In other words, 
maybe it's possible that if you really work on yourself and you really allow yourself to challenge your own psyche and your own conventions, maybe this relationship can become a blessing. Is it maybe possible that your emotional responses are a response to your own fears? Is it maybe that this spouse is challenging you in ways that you're completely unaccustomed to and therefore your natural reaction is, let me just get out of this marriage? Is it possible that this marriage, although it may have challenges to it, may contain tremendous blessings for yourself and your future and hopefully your future family? And therefore, if I was in your position, or you were my best friend, I would caution you and say, really open yourself up to the situation. Speak to confidants who you really trust, who are mature, who have experience with this, maybe some professionals, maybe some people, rabbis or others, but people who have experience with this, who are sensitive to your situation, who care for you, who you trust, and really allow yourself to be exposed to yourself because what often happens in relationships is we are not ready to challenge ourselves. We're not ready to work on our midas. We're not ready to deal with our own weaknesses, our own insecurities, our own fears. And we have all these smoke screens protecting us. And we say, you know, this person is selfish. This person is narcissistic. My spouse is self-centered. My spouse is codependent. My spouse is a mishugana. My spouse is aggressive. My spouse is abras- abrasive. My spouse is tough. My spouse is unforgiving. I could never have a normal life with this person. Now, I could tell you you're 100% right. This guy is is an idiot and he's a moron and just get rid of him. You know, they once asked a woman, how is your marriage? And she said, before I was married, I was incomplete. Now I'm married and I'm finished. Somebody once asked a couple, how is your relationship doing? And, you know, the guy said, when we got engaged, she thought I was brilliant. So I was doing all of the talking and she was doing all of the listening. She loved listening to me. And then we got married and it changed. She started to do all of the talking and I started to do all of the listening. And uh, so the rabbi says, and now he says, now it's 15 years later, we both do all of the talking and the neighbors do all of the listening. In our first episode, we discussed, I think, some of these anecdotes and how to deal with marriage. That's not our discussion today. But my point to you is simply this. It's easy to dismiss a relationship and say it's not workable. But very, very often, if we're both committed to work on ourselves and to grow And to realize we're not here to change other people, but we have a lot of control over our attitudes and our perspectives. Sometimes you may find that a relationship that you called so challenging may contain the seeds and opportunities for unprecedented growth in your life. So all I ask you is open yourself up to that possibility. No, you don't take abuse. No, you should not make a decision out of weakness and out of uh, dread and fear of what other people will say. But you do not want to make a decision based on external instincts or fears or habits without really discovering what you're capable of and what the other person is capable of. That's my advice to you. Okay, let's take another question. Rabbi YY Radio at gmail.com. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I have made tremendous mistakes in my life. Okay, we have all. You have here a session, a show, how to deal with failures, how to deal with mistakes. I am guilt ridden. I am always guilt ridden. I was stupid, I was foolish, I was primitive. What am I supposed to do? Okay, first of all, we've all made mistakes in our life. (laughs) You're not the only one. We constantly make mistakes in our life. Some of us make mistakes every day of our life. Now, I know, I guess that you think that your mistakes are more dramatic than everybody else's mistakes. You probably look in the mirror and you say, this is the devil gazing at myself. If you're a good Jew, there is a lot of guilt in you and you... uh, You know, they tell the joke, right? There were all these people applying for jury duty and there was this Jewish woman 
who uh, she got over the hook, they sent her home because basically she told the judge that she was guilty. So there's a lot of guilt here. Okay, let's discuss this for a few moments. I have made mistakes. I made even today a mistake. Probably more than one. You have made mistakes. Some of the mistakes are are big. They feel big. Some of them feel small. Some of them we don't realize. Some of them we realize. Now, there's also different types of people. Some of you are very sensitive people. You make a tiny mistake and you feel it for months. You're guilt-ridden for months. Some of us are like, you know, bulls in china shops. We don't even realize our mistakes. Some of us are so sensitive, somebody tells us something and we think about it for three days. Do you ever go to a bar mitzvah or a wedding or a Shabbos meal or a reception or whatever? You meet somebody in shul or anywhere else and they tell you something and you think about it for three days nonstop. And then there's other people who forgot what you told them even before (laughs) you finished telling it to them. It's just, whoa, goes right over them or right under them. There's many different types of people, not people who are sensitive. Usually they're spiritually sensitive and they absorb things very deeply, sometimes to their own detriment. This question becomes far larger. There are a few steps in dealing with mistakes, including serious mistakes, including damaging mistakes. It's not just a mistake. I made a mistake. You know, I came late to the airport. And I missed my airplane. Fine. I don't know how many times did that happened to me. But I'm talking about mistakes that really damage. They make damage. They make damage to you. They cause damage to other people. You know, it's not just that. I made a mistake. Okay, I'll learn my lesson. Here is number one. Step number one is you have to be able to acknowledge your mistake. You have to be able, what's called in Judaism and in Jewish law, called vidui, confession. Confession is not a Christian term. Confession originates in Judaism. What does confession mean? Confession means you verbally actually acknowledge that you made an error, and if need be, you ask forgiveness. You ask forgiveness from your soul. You ask forgiveness from another person. You ask forgiveness from God. You ask forgiveness from your Creator. And this need to acknowledge mistakes, to be able to talk about it, to be able to verbally articulate that I have made an error and I am sorry, it gives us tremendous spiritual power. Besides the fact that it's the right and moral thing to do. Let me tell you a lovely Hasidic story. There was once a Jew who came to a Rebbe, the Rebbe Reb Shmuel of Lubavitch. This was the fourth Rebbe of the Chabad dynasty, Rebbe Shmuel. He was a son of the Tzemach Tzedek. He's known as the Rebbe Maharash. And a Jew comes to him and he says, Rebbe, I have a question. I have a close friend who committed a very serious sin and transgression, but he's too ashamed to come to the Rebbe and ask for a tikkun, ask for a remedy. So therefore he sent me as his messenger to come to the Rebbe and ask advice what he can do to fix his mistake. The Rebbe looks at this person and of course he understands that nobody sent this person. This person is the one who committed his heinous sin. And he was too embarrassed to tell the Rebbe it was me, so he blames his friend, and he says he's coming as a representative of his friend. So the Rebbe looks at him, and the Rebbe says, I have a question. Why did you have to come and say that your friend committed this sin, and he's too ashamed to come, so therefore he sent you? Why couldn't your friend come to me and tell me that you did it? And the man realized that the Rebbe understands what's going on. And he broke down in tears. And he said, I lied. It was me. I did it. And I want the Rebbe to help me out of my mess, to guide me. That's the end. And the Rebbe gave him a tikkun. The Rebbe Maharash gave him advice how to deal with it. So somebody once asked me a very interesting question after I related the story. He said, I don't understand. Why did the Rebbe have to show to this person that he knows that he lied. Okay, you're too embarrassed. 
you come to your Rebbe and you say your friend did so and so and you need he's looking for a way to fix it and you're asking the question for him. Okay. The guy lied. He's trying to deceive the Rebbe. Fine. If you have a big ego, you're compelled to tell a person, don't think you deceived me, but somebody who doesn't operate from a place of of insecurity or self-aggrandizement, why, why does he have to show that he knows the person is lying? Just, just give him a tick and give him an answer. I hope that all of you understand the answer to this question. Because the Rebbe understood something we must all understand. There is no way the person can begin fixing his mistakes if he's not ready to show up and stand behind them. If you're not ready to show up and say, I did it, I have committed this crime, I am responsible, I made a terrible mistake, I am guilty, I sinned, then Every tikkun in the world, every remedy in the world will be ineffective. As long as you're busy hiding behind your friend and hiding behind other people, you're not ready to be present. And if you're not ready to be present, how do you think you can grow? How do you think you can heal? How do you think you can gain forgiveness? It's not going to work. And therefore, the Rebbe had to first tell him, listen, my friend, if you're not ready to show up in this relationship, if you're not going to be here, we can't work with you. And it go, really goes deeper because essentially the concept of tshuva, the concept of transformation is really being present, really saying, you know, I I am fully here. That is the very concept of, of tshuva, of repentance. So therefore, that's stage number one. When it comes to mistakes, when it comes to failures, show up. Show up. Take responsibility. Talk about it. To whom? To yourself, to God, to other people, to a friend, to a therapist, to a psychologist, to a rabbi, to a mentor, to a confidant, or to a few people, even better. But talk. Talk. Acknowledge. Speak about your mistakes. Demons skeletons, ghosts hang out in the darkness. They love mystery. They love when things are shrouded in ambiguity. Don't be like that. Expose it. And when you expose it, you can start dealing with it. Question. Very interesting question. I am too embarrassed. I am too embarrassed to expose. Okay, my friend, I understand. I understand you're embarrassed. But you know what? Let me tell you something. You are attributing to yourself superhuman qualities. And that is making you less than human. Somehow you're assuming you're incapable of mistakes. And therefore, when you make a terrible mistake, you're terribly ashamed. So let me tell you some news. This is part of the human condition. Do you really think that your brilliance is infinite and therefore you're incapable of making a mistake? And when you realize you made one, you want to jump off this planet? Welcome to the human race. Inherent to the human condition is we make mistakes constantly. We have poor judgment We have big egos. We have lots of insecurities. We misread situations. We're insensitive to truth and integrity. We often replace short-term... We we, we often fall prey to short-term gratification and instinctive inclinations without a vision and a strategy for our long-term benefits. Fine, I understand that. Do you know the Medrash says that there were a few things that were created before the universe. There are a few items that God, a few realities that God creates before the universe. One of them is tshuva, repentance. But I have a question. Why would he introduce tshuva, repentance, before the creation of the universe? Isn't repentance a result, a consequence, aftermath of sin? Which sin is only a reality of creation as a result of of human choices? But of course the answer is that who created us with the ability to fail and stumble and make mistakes and lie and cheat? Who? 
Our creator gave us that, that ability. Why did he design us that way? And the answer is, before he created us, he created a reality called tshuva. Because he knew that humans will fail and stumble, and he gave us an opportunity to return, to recreate ourselves, to reinvent ourselves, to learn from our mistakes. So listen, my friend, I understand that you're ashamed. I understand that you're embarrassed. And we all have things that shame us very heavily. But I think it's desperately important for you to talk to somebody. Find the right person, but find them and don't delay it. Don't delay it. And don't think that you're supposed to be perfect. And therefore, if you're not perfect, you're less than human. You, we, you know, we often have this delusional idea about ourselves that, is, that builds us up and really makes us so weak. We have this perception that we have to be perfect, that we have to be impeccable, that we have to be flawless. And therefore, we can't be vulnerable because if I'm vulnerable and I'm naked and I and I express myself, so then you're going to see how frail I am and how simple I am and how terrible I am and how evil I am, and therefore you're going to hate me for the rest of your life. But this is a terrible, terrible mistake because we are all human and we have lots of virtues within us and we have lots of vices within us. And when you really believe that you're incapable of mistakes, small mistakes or grand mistakes, and therefore you're hiding behind this this uh, camouflaged mask, your Pura mask, so then you can't live. You can't function. Your whole life is based on a lie. How can you live this way? You have to be able to spill the beans. You have to be able... It doesn't mean you walk around with a sign on your forehead so that everybody in the street could know everything about your life. Of course not. You find people you trust, but there are people you can trust and you have to speak to them about it. There's also, I think, another very important issue when it comes to exposing your failures, and that is... What do you think is going to happen when people see that you're really vulnerable? Then people that people see that you really you really made mistakes. You think that you're going to melt away into oblivion, but the truth is it's the other way around. People cherish relationships with human beings. You know, I'll tell you what I say under the chuppah. Um, at the end of the chuppah, the groom breaks the glass, right? And everybody screams, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov. And then we start dancing. Why do we break the glass under the chuppah? And the answer is, Chorban Yerushalayim. We remember, we remember at the height of our joy, we remember the destroyed hearts and the destroyed souls in our world. We remember Yerushalayim, we remember the Beis HaMikdash. Why the Mazel Tov? Why the Mazel Tov right after the breaking of the glass? So I once heard a lovely insight. It's a message for life. We're telling the bride, we're telling the Kala, you see this husband, you see this chassan. Right now he is impeccable. He's flawless. He's the greatest guy in the world. He's handsome. He's perfect. But let me tell you something. Sooner or later he's going to start breaking things. You know what you have to do when he starts breaking things? You have to be able to say Mazel Tov. Mazel tov, thank you, God, that you allowed me to have a relationship with a real person, a person who's not perfect, a, perf- a person who's not an angel, and the same is true with your wife right now under the chuppah. She's the greatest of the greats. She's a, pri- she's a priceless gem. Sooner or later, she might start breaking things. Probably not as much as he. That's why he breaks it. You know what you have to say? You have to say mazel tov. Mazel tov that I can have a relationship with a real person to create a piece of heaven on earth. And therefore, my dear friend, asking this this question, stop, stop sheltering yourself by a delusional idea of perfection that's not real. When you're vulnerable, you can have better relationships with yourself because you're real. And let me tell you something else. One of the greatest obstacles that holds us back from confessing our mistakes and acknowledging our sins is the fact that we believe that we are evil at our core, we are unworthy at our at our core, we are undesirable in our essence, and therefore we have to hide our essence because if you're going to see what there is lurking in the heart of hearts, you will never look at me again. This is a fundamental error that you have to challenge every day. At your core, you're a piece of God. 
ונפש השניס בישראל היא חלק אליקה ממעל ממש. Tanya says in chapter 2, Your soul is a fragment of God. How evil can it be? Stop believing that at your core you're terrible, you're undesirable, you're unworthy. That is the greatest sin. <laughs> Now you're going to feel guilty for that too. There's a part of you that is as sweet, as holy, as adorable, as angelic, as pure, as pristine, as wholesome, as happy, as confident as God himself. Even if you've made a lot of mistakes in your life, and even if you've had bad experiences in your life, you have to be able to meditate and tap into that core and operate from that place. And therefore, if I come to you and I say, you know, I really did this and this yesterday. I lied to you. I cheated you. I backstabbed you. I insulted you. I denigrated you. Or another mistake or sin I made. What is going to happen? What is going to happen is I will actually be able to spit out my filth and my true inner beauty will come out. Don't think you're going to melt away into oblivion when you expose your evil. When you expose your evil, you'll actually allow your purity to emerge. But you don't know how much purity there is in you. But there is irrelevant of what you did or what you did not do. And therefore, this was the lesson this Rebbe was telling the man who came to him. The prerequisite for all tikkun, the prerequisite for all healing is acknowledgement. Let's go to the questions. You are joining Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson on his weekly Mitzah, my weekly Mitzah Shabbos radio show from 10 to 11 p.m. at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can email all of your remarks and questions, suggestions, objections to Rabbi YY Radio at gmail.com. Dear Rabbi, I need an explanation. How do I not wallow in my guilt? There's a lump in my throat constantly or a lump in my heart because of terrible mistakes I made. How do I move on even if I acknowledge my mistakes? Okay, excellent question. Step number one is acknowledging. Step number one is confronting. Step number one is not running away from it. And now we get to step number two. But before we get to step number two, I'm going to just tell you a line that I still remember because it stayed with me. I heard this from my brother. He told this to me, I think the day I got engaged. <laughs> And it was very good advice. He said to me, in your relationship, don't try to be perfect. Don't be perfect. I know you, you will never be perfect. You will make many mistakes. What I ask you is, what I suggest to you is don't be perfect, but be accountable. Don't be perfect, my friends, but be accountable. Accountable means that when I, am, when I am imperfect, I take accountability for it. I don't run away and hide behind smoke screens and masks and cover-ups and invent excuses and then excuses on the excuses. You know what they say? That lawyers have to have good memories <laughs> because they're always covering up their lies, right? So I tell you I was here last night. So that's one lie. Then tomorrow I make, have to make sure I don't contradict my old lie. So that's why, fellows, if you have a bad memory, make sure you speak the truth because truth will not contradict itself, only in quantum mechanics, in modern physics. But on our, uh, on our level of reality, truth will not contradict itself. So if you have a bad memory, make sure you say the truth. And many of us have bad memories, it seems. Okay, so that's number one. Don't be perfect, but be accountable. Be accountable. Be accountable to yourself. Be accountable to your spouse. Be accountable to your partners. Be accountable to your friends. Be accountable to the people you work with. And be accountable to your soul. Your soul. But now there's step number two. Step number two, I'm going to share with you an insight from the Holy Seer of Lublin, the Halak Echoiz of Lublin. And he once said as follows, you know, in the Mayr of prayer, in the prayer of the evening services, we turn to God and we say, Remove Satan from before us and from in back of us. Now I understand why Satan is standing before us. He's leading the way. He's telling you, go there. 
go here, say these words, send this email, send this text, eat this, visit this place, visit this website, etc. I got why the Satan is standing right in front of me. So I turn to God and I say, Vahasir Satan Mulfanani, remove the Satan from before me. But what's the Meacharenu? Why is Satan behind me? So the seer of Lublin said, The Satan is behind you because after you sin, the Satan emerges and says, Ah, look how bad you are. Look what a horrible person you are. Look what a horrible Jew you are. And that's also Satan. In other words, there are two types of Satans. There is the Satan who compels you to sin, and then there is the Satan who stands behind you after you sin and tells you how horrible you are because of your sin. And that's the same Satan, and I would add that the latter is more dangerous than the former, and I'll tell you why. For the former Satan, we know there's a way out. It's called tshuva. If I made a mistake... If I did something terrible, that's why there's something called tshuva, repentance, transformation, rebirth. But for the Satan behind me, the voice in me that tells me, oh, you're so bad, you're so terrible, look what you did, look how much damage you caused, look how stupid you are, look how much darkness there is in you, look how much evil there is in you. For this, there's no tshuva. Because what am I guilty about? I'm guilty about the fact that I sinned. In fact, many people think that this voice is coming from the Yetzir Taif. Many people believe that the voice of guilt is coming from the holy side in them that feels terrible about what they did. But you know who it is? It's really the devil trying to destroy you, trying to keep you down, trying to make sure that when you were boxed in the face and you fell down, you never get up again because you tell yourself that you are a dead, worthless victim destined to eternal guilt. This is the same Satan who made you sin and sometimes it's even worse. And therefore, I want you to know the first thing is this guilt, this lump in your throat, I understand why it's there. And I'm not judging it. We all have these experiences, especially if you're a sensitive person. And you're probably a very sensitive person, and it stays with you. I have it. You have it. We have it. But the first thing is we have to identify that this is a voice from the Satan. The Yetzir Hara, your negative inclination, wants to keep you down, wants to keep you depressed, wants that you should... Continue, continue sinning. In other words, you can't, depression, somebody once told me, told this to me directly. He heard this from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who told him he did something wrong. And he was very, he was, he was so angry at himself, he was eating himself up. And he told me that the Rebbe told him these words. This is, I quote what I heard from this man maybe 15, 20 years ago. He said, the Rebbe turned to me and said, depression is an Aveda. Depression is a sin. You don't fix one sin by doing another sin. I punched you in the face. I want to fix it. So I give you another punch in the face. Really? That's how you fix a sin? Depression is a sin in and of itself. It's not allowing you to fix your sin. I tell you this. You feel bad about what you did? Do something about it. Don't get depressed. The depression is coming from the Satan who wants you to be stuck and therefore is telling you how terrible you are. Do what you have to do. You need to apologize? Apologize. You need to confront somebody? Confront somebody. But don't stay down. I want to read you a verdict, writing a, 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 a paragraph, a sentence in the halachic work of the Rambam, Maimonides, who lived in the 12th century in Spain, and then later in, uh, in Morocco, and then later in the Holy Land, and then finally in Egypt. And he wrote his monumental work of halacha, Mishneh Torah, Yad HaChazaka. There's a section called Hilchas Deis, chapter 6. He writes this, and I'm going to translate into English. He says as follows. 
when somebody, when one person sins to another person, it is not right to hate him and be quiet about it. In fact, this is immoral. This is what happened between Afshalom and Amnon. Amnon raped his uh, half-sister, and Afshalom would not speak to him about it at all. He just hated him, and ultimately he killed him. It's a mitzvah to confront the person who has harmed you and tell him, why did you do so and so to me? Why did you sin against me by committing this and this act? This is a biblical commandment. You should rebuke your friend. And if the man apologizes, you should forgive him and don't be cruel. Now this is a very, very interesting halacha. This is not a modern therapist speaking. This is Rambam, Maimonides, speaking in the 12th century in his halachic code, Hilchas Deus. What he's telling us is, don't repress your grievances. If you feel somebody hurt you, confront them. Speak to them about it. Don't hide it. Call them up. Don't text them. I don't like texting. Call them up. You want to email, email. And speak to them about it. You may be shocked, you may be surprised, you may be perplexed. They may apologize to you. They may clarify some things. Don't make assumptions and don't let it stay with you. Speak about it. You see, that means you're not paralyzed. You're doing something about it. Sometimes you have to ask forgiveness. If it's between you and God, speak to God about it. If it's between you and somebody else, speak also to the other person. If it's between you and yourself, which is between you and God and yourself, speak to yourself. Again, speak to other people. Speak to people that you can trust. But do not remain downtrodden and dejected. And generally, the Mishnah says, You need a Rav and you need a friend. You need a mentor, you need somebody that you could speak to because when we expose these things to other people, they will shed light on it. The Gemara says, When you're in prison, you cannot get out of prison. We need the assistance of other people. The more you communicate, the more you bring the demon into the light. Shine the light on your ghosts and you'll see a lot of them will dissipate. Will dissipate. But, but don't, don't freeze. Don't freeze. There's one more point you have to remember. And that is, the Baal Shem Tif teaches, it's based on Medrash, the Medrash Tehillim says, that creation is a perpetual event. It's not a one-time event. It's not that God created the world 5,755 years ago and the world moves. The world is recreated every moment. In other words, there's something called now. If you want to tune in to the heartbeat of life, you have to tune in to now because right now you are being created. Your psyche is being created, your consciousness, your mind, your identity, and everybody around you. And what this really means in life is it's not a philosophical idea only. It's a very personal and emotional idea. It means that you always have to tune into now, not to the past. This doesn't mean I deny what I did in the past, but it means I can't be defined by the past and deny myself the ability to be in tune with life right now. So ask yourself the question, what does the now summon me to do? I was just created anew. Let me let go of all the past. Let's say I did terrible things. Let's say I was stupid. I was primitive. Okay, got it. I believe you. (laughs) I believe you. You were stupid. You were primitive. I'm also stupid and primitive. (laughs) Who's not? Who's not? You know how much wisdom there is that we don't know? But now I ask you one question. Can you be present right now? Everything is new. Everything was just created. Can you tune in to the life flow pulsating and vibrating through your body at this very moment and then make your decisions from this place? Whatever you have to fix, you have to fix. Whoever you have to call, you have to call. Whatever you have to acknowledge, you have to acknowledge. But you can't live in yesterday. You have to live now. God is creating you now to be here presently and you're not here presently. Work on this.
Let me take another question, Rabbi YY Radio at gmail.com. We are discussing dealing with failures and mistakes. How do you deal with failures and mistakes? Okay, question. If somebody has harmed me, should I forgive him? Well, that's about his mistake, not about your mistake. If somebody has harmed you and he asks forgiveness, I think you should forgive him. <laughs> if somebody says, I'm sorry, and they apologize, of course you should forgive him. That would be a wonderful thing. You know, when you don't forgive, it's not only them, it's not only the other person you're harming. You often live with it in yourself, of course. If somebody comes to you and apologizes, I think you have to be able to find within yourself the resources to forgive them. If they don't apologize to you and they don't even acknowledge it, that's already more challenging. Halachically, you're not obligated to forgive them, although there is a lovely prayer that the Arizal, the great Kabbalist Rabbi Isaac Luria from Tzafas, who lived in the 15th century, I'm sorry, he lived in the 16th century. And the Arizal says a prayer he composed to say at night. And many prayer books have it. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece. It says, It's a beautiful prayer. Master of the universe, I forgive. Everyone who has provoked me, who has angered me, who has sinned against me, my body, my money, my honor, willingly or inadvertently, through speech or through words, in this incarnation or in a previous incarnation, is this a halachic obligation? If somebody does not ask your forgiveness, you are not obliged to forgive them. However, there is a pious modality of life, which is not halachically obligated, and that is, if you're capable, if you're capable and you want to forgive and let go of all grudges, so the Rambam also in Hilchas Deus, chapter 6 says, This is a very pious way, pious way of, of living. But by the way, this is referring to forgiving others what they did to you. When somebody damages somebody else, you can't forgive them. (laughs) They have to ask forgiveness from the person that they hurt. You cannot forgive somebody else for what they did uh, to somebody else. It's not really your business. Either way, it's not your business. So you have to know also also your boundaries. I want to say something. You know, we often make assumptions about people without speaking to them. If you think somebody hurt you, speak to them. You may find out that it was completely unintentional, you may find out, find out that you're making a mistake. I know of so many disputes and fights that are really based on innocence. You know, people have so many different types of natures. You have to acknowledge the fact that your psyche is not made up like my psyche. Okay. Somebody was very upset at me the other day that I did not respond to his text. Okay, But some of us are terrible in responding to texts. Some of us are with our iPhones 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We don't go into the bathroom without our iPhone, God forbid. But some of us are not so good at our iPhones. We don't don't check our text messages every 6 seconds. We check them every 17 seconds. And some of us are really bad. And if somebody didn't respond to your text, maybe he doesn't read everything. Maybe it was an oversight. Maybe he planned and he fell asleep and tomorrow there were another 99 texts and he missed your text. Don't build cases of resentment against people without interviewing them. All you have to do is pick up a phone. That's what the Rambam says. And he didn't even, there were no telephones at the time. He meant write a letter or confront the person. This is a very good idea in life. Don't make assumptions about people. You'll be surprised. People are often better than you imagine. Okay, let's take another question. We have a few minutes here. You're joining Rabbi YY's weekly radio show dealing with mistakes and failures. Let's see the next question. Practically speaking, I have made a lot of mistakes in my life. I really appreciate what you're saying. How do I go on from here? Is there a way I can grow from what I have done? That's a beautiful, beautiful question, and I'm going to respond to this. I think this is going to be one of our final points, if not our final point. Let me let me take this one step deeper, a little more philosophical or Kabbalistic or mystical and so on and so forth. 
Jewish mysticism teaches that even the mistakes that we have, that we make, and even the sins we make, in some abstract, mystical, not easily comprehensible way, the fact that God allows us to make these mistakes means that God is somehow involved. Now, how to reconcile this with free choice, because we absolutely have free choice, is a separate question. I once gave a, I just finished giving a a three-week series on the Jewish philosophical approach of do we have free choice or not? And you could watch those classes on the yeshiva.net, just like you can watch my class tomorrow morning, Sunday morning, live, 9.30 a.m. on the yeshiva.net, and every Sunday morning for that matter. But that's, that's, I don't want to get in here to the philosophical question. I want to make one point, and that is as follows. Every mistake that you have made, every sin that you have made, has within it also a divine spark of holiness. What do I mean? I mean it wasn't all evil. How can it not all have been evil? Because from God's perspective, there is an element of holiness in what you did. How? How? And this is one of the most important ideas. The best way to express it is by a teaching of Rabbi Yitzchak of Barditchev. The Holy Barditchever quotes a Midrash. The Midrash says in Parshas Emor, it speaks about Sukkot, and it says, on the first day, you should take the four species and shake them, the Lulav, the Estrog, the Hadas, the Arava. And the Midrash says, what do you mean the first day? It's the 15th day of the month. And the Midrash says, it's the first day when we calculate sins. And the question is, why is that the first day that we calculate sins? So the commentators explain based on the Midrash, on Yom Kippur, we're atoned for our sins. The next four days, Jews are busy running around, building sukkahs, buying lulavs. They don't have time to sin. On the first day of sukkahs, we go into the sukkah. Now we could start sinning. So it's the first day of calculating sins. Ask the Baditchever, come on, you really believe on the first day of Sukkot, that's when everybody starts sinning. And this is what he says, my friend. He says that, you know, the Talmud says in Shraktate Yuma, there are two types of repentance. There's a repentance out of fear. And when you do repentance out of fear, God turns all of your malicious sins into mistakes. But then there is repentance out of love. Yuma, page 86. And repentance out of love transforms your sins into mitzvahs. What does it mean your sins become mitzvahs? It means that when you do real tshuva out of love, suddenly you realize that all of your mistakes and all of your sins from God's perspective we're only there as a catalyst and as a springboard to bring you to a deeper relationship with yourself and with Hashem. Every single mistake remains a mistake and a sin only if I don't learn something from it. If I learn something from it and I transform myself based on it, it becomes an essential part of my education. So the sin itself has now been redefined as a necessary growing step to reach your ultimate relationship with life and with God. So says the Holy Baditshever on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we do tshuva out of fear. So therefore, all of our sins are disregarded. But on Sukkot, we start doing tshuva out of love. And when you do tshuva out of love, now your sins are transformed into mitzvahs. Now it's not only your sins are wiped away and forgiven, but rather they themselves become redefined as mitzvahs. In the terms of the Talmud, Yuma 86, Rish Lakish, the very negative sins are transformed into mitzvahs. So the Baditchevah says, what do you have to do on the first day of Sukkot? Now God says, it's time to calculate your sins. Till now you threw away your mistakes. And now it's time to reclaim your sins because each one of them is transformed into a mitzvah. What does this mean practically in your life? This means there's three steps. Step number one acknowledge the mistake and grieve for the mistake. Step number two, do what you have to do to fix, to change, to transform. Step number three, you will come to realize that your very mishap, your very shortcomings, your very errors and sins and transgressions can be redefined 
as springboards for rebirth, for rediscovery, and for recovery. Friends, thank you so much for listening. This is Rabbi YY, weekly radio program here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Every Saturday night from 10 to 11 p.m., you can come and listen to my class tomorrow morning, Sunday, 9.30 a.m., every week at theyeshiva.net, where you can also see a recording of this radio show. We will be back next week. Good night. This class is brought to you by theyeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.